All right, fellas, we're back on the Grid Up Podcast. I'm glad you can join us. Today we got a special guest, a very special, very knowledgeable uh, guest who's going to geek out a little bit on some awesome local Milwaukee music. Uh, this is a very, it's a fascinating podcast just to hear the experiences that he's had, the places he's gone, the things he's gotten to do. Um, frankly, I about half the time didn't even know what he was talking about. <laughs> it's just real talk. Uh, but I still couldn't stop listening and it hurt a little bit, hurt my heart a little bit to tell him our time was up at the end of the podcast. Uh, just fascinating, fascinating man. Some fascinating stories, uh, fascinating approach to life. Um, just a really cool guy living at a really cool time. Um, he's a man that does not know how to quit. He's a man who does not know when to slow down, which is awesome. Um, and he, uh, he really truly embodies the, the go-getter mentality, the go-getter, um, mantra. And he's also just an incredibly talented human being on top of it. Uh, one of the best percussionists I've ever heard. Uh, he just, Got a wonderful gift for working with kids. He's got so much going for him, and he's such an interesting guy. His name is Bob Buss. Uh, some of you know him. Anybody that does know him kind of chuckles when they hear the name just because he's such a great dude, and, and he's so fun to be around. Uh, but before we do that, before we get into the Bob Buss interview here, uh, I want to encourage you to go on social media or go to wherever you listen to this podcast and give it a, a follow, give it a subscription, a rating, a review, whatever you do. Uh, make sure that Everybody in your life knows that you're listening to this podcast, that you enjoy this podcast, that you're growing from this podcast, uh, and that good things are coming of it. Uh, upcoming here, we've got some really cool and exciting interviews. You can hear me talking in this interview with Bob um, about a future interview with some members of Coin A, uh, particularly Brian uh, Davidson. Uh, we also got Pastor Mike Novotny coming up in a couple of weeks, which is super exciting. Um, got a couple other ones that are in the works of getting scheduled, so Really, really exciting, cool stuff. Some some masters in their field, some men who really know their content, um, who are going to be a true blessing to us um, and to our lives as we continue to speak to each other about manhood and speak into the, the, your own masculinity. Um, beyond that, make sure you're on the lookout, guys. The uh, mugs are going to arrive any day now, working on some T-shirts, that kind of thing. Uh, we're going to get it up on... Etsy. So I'll give you that information when it comes. We'll get a store up on Etsy. And if you're doing your Christmas shopping or you're you're getting some stuff ready to go for the holidays or you just want your own gird up gear or better yet, if you love what you're hearing on the podcast and you want to support it, go buy something on Etsy. I'll get the mugs up there. Um, we've got a couple different variations of mugs and t-shirts and bands and, and stickers and all kinds of stuff you can buy up there. So we'll get it up there soon. Um, I'll let you know when it really truly is up and running and ready to, to, to go and to buy some stuff. But that's the best way for you to support the podcast because this thing does not run itself. Um, and right now it doesn't pay for itself. And that's the goal, not for me to make a big profit and get rich and fat and sassy. Um, although I already am a little fat and sassy. Anyway, it's not for, the goal isn't for me to get rich. The goal is that we can keep this podcast going and, and hopefully get even more high-profile high guests who can give us even better information and even better knowledge and understanding. Um, so that was a little bit of a long intro, uh, and so I want to get into it now with Mr. Bob Buss. Bob is an expert in his field, which is teaching, and he's also an expert in his other field, which is music, particularly playing uh drum set, playing percussion, playing snare drum, whatever it is, if you bang on it, he's good at it. Uh, and you're going to hear some of that here. Uh, hear some of his adventures. Enjoy the time we get to spend today with Mr. Bob Buss. Hello and welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. The call to gird up is an ancient way of telling a man to prepare himself for hard work or a battle ahead. Our work is to reclaim masculinity in the modern world and to live out our calling as men of God. Here you will find a community of believers, brothers in Christ, working hard to become the men that God has called us to be. I am your host, Charlie Ungemach. I'm a teacher, a coach, music director, and a man of God, myself working toward the goal of, like David, being a man after God's own heart. We're happy you could join us. Now it's time to roll up our sleeves, to gird up, and become the men that God has created us to be. <laughs> All right, folks, we are here with Mr. Bob Buss. Bob, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're, there's no one that can quite 
describe Bob Buss the way Bob Buss describes Bob Buss. So talk to us about yourself. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, you are a teacher at St. Paul's in Menominee. Yes, I am. Um, you live in the up north. Yes, I do. Uh, you uh, spent a long time, though, in Milwaukee. You grew up in Milwaukee, is that correct? Yes, I was born and raised in the entire city of Milwaukee. So I was burn, born, <laughs> burned. He was burned. <laughs> it was, you know, it was six years after the riots, but I did. Up uh, north. <laughs> I was born uh, living on 38th and Wright Street, and then my parents moved to, oh, way out by used, what used to be a Peaches Records, uh, which is where I bought my first record at three years old, and about 100th and Silver Spring. I moved 18 times by the age of 10, but my OCD, autistic, perhaps, parents moved us perpetually south and east 18 times throughout the city of Milwaukee. I ended up on 20th and College. Uh, my father moved from there to North Carolina. Currently, he lives on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border in Del Rio, <laughs> Texas. And, um, yeah, I have a large record collection. I have played music since the age of... Well, since the age of three, am so I playing your instrument of choice? That was eight years old. So I, everyone in my family had to um, make a choice at three years old. Was it organ or accordion? <laughs> and uh, I had to take organ lessons from this poor woman I referred to as the fat lady <laughs> <laughs> at the uh, at the music store uh, over by Rapinas Foods off of 84th and Oklahoma. And, uh, I don't this is even, like jazz organ or, or like no, this is like, organ or? yes, like, you know, the family, I think we all had a Lowry organ <laughs> and, uh, you know, my grandfather was a spy in Berlin in world war two and played accordion in all the uh, SS officers clubs and listened while playing the accordion and walking the table. So that is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> that is, I've never heard that before. That is so cool. Yeah. So we all had to play the accordion and, uh, or organ. It was our choice. And so, uh. Uh, I, I went into lessons at six years old and I sat on my hands for three weeks, refused to touch the keyboard for the poor fat lady. <laughs> Can and you even reach the pedals when you're three years old? No, I don't know. I don't know what the point was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the point was, but uh, it was just something that had always been done in our family. And uh, at eight years old, my mother had uh, already divorced. And uh, by, because my father moved too many times, they also owned 22 cars in the four and a half years they were married. <laughs> And <laughs> How many kids did they have in the four and a half years? Thankfully, just myself. Just yourself, okay. And three Norwell, Norwegian elk hounds. <laughs> <laughs> One of them got hit by an airplane. What? How does a dog get hit by an airplane? Uh, we lived over by Timmerman Field on our second move when we lived on 84th and Villard. Okay. <laughs> South and East. Yeah, all right. (laughs) And uh, the dog ran away, and I was told, I don't know if it's true, but this is the reason why there are now (laughs) chain link fencing around Timmerman Field. It was a dark and stormy night, (laughs) and the dog ran away. (laughs) (laughs) To his peril. Yes. Herbie wasn't too smart, but he was my favorite dog. I used to ride him around the house like a a horse. But anyway, so... (laughs) I started playing drums at eight years old and uh, formed my first punk rock band at 12 years old in the neighborhood down there on 20th and College, um, the the Suicidal Garbage Men. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was about 1984, 85-ish, and uh, we were on the cover of, or in, inside of Thrasher magazine because we thought we were so cool when we built a skate ramp, and um, yeah, and then... I decided to become a teacher my senior year of high school because I wanted to avoid a detention when I was walking down the uh, hall at Wisco and uh, Ken Litke was walking uh, down the other end of the hallway and he said, hey, where are you guys going? And I said, I'm going to visit that recruiter from that college that's here today. And I ended up signing up for a trip to New Ulm to visit DMLC, even though I already had a full ride to Louisiana State University if I only would have been in their drumline. And uh, ended up liking the idea. My mother nearly caused an accident on the corner of 84th and Blue Mound, picking me up from school when I announced that I was going to go to New Ulm to become a teacher. And I was really into the idea of becoming a teacher because um, I had always been into the concept of, uh, you know, revitalizing my city, which had declined my entire lifetime, essentially. Uh, we, lo- we lost about one-third of the city's populations from the time I was born until that point in the early 90s. And it continued to go down with... Uh, NAFTA and all those other 
uh, terrible things that happened to the world. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, um, yeah, my, um, this is interesting. So my preschool class that my mother just gave me a picture of last night, I had to be part of my concept of really wanting to be an urban ed teacher. Uh, and, uh, after assigning me to Oakfield, Wisconsin, the year after that tornado tore down the I've inter- heard about that. And they're yeah. like, because there's a, ca- a canning place The canning there. factory is there, yeah. yeah. And they found canning materials as far away as like oh, um, you know, uh, and Michigan. And a lumberyard. Is it canning? There's a cannery and a... Is it a cannery? It's a canning sure. factory. Canning factory and a yeah. lumberyard in, in in one little town it got hit by a tornado yeah town of 1000 it, it, it so the the story there was actually quite fascinating so um i was assigned there the tornado story though i guess was that um it was july 16th of 1996 maybe i'm off by a day or so um and uh there there was a visiting pastor on thursday night church and uh, someone came into the church service late and said, everybody down in the basement right now. And they all ran down in the basement. And not five minutes later, an entire like two thirds of the village of Oakfield was wiped out. Not a single death. And when they emerged from the storm cellar, basically, uh, there was a single wall standing in the entire path, which was the back wall of the church, which is a picture of Jesus. And it says, lo, I am with you always. Whoa. One of like maybe three or four F5 tornadoes to hit the state in its entire history. Wow. Uh, I happen to be serving wow. now in Menominee, Wisconsin, which is another one of those towns that had an F5 tornado hit it. And I was just driving through that area with an old timer in my congregation who was telling me all about it. And another guy in our congregation who donated uh, an entire like field of sweet corn to our school that we didn't know what to do with it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still a lot of like windfall up there, too. Even There is. You can see it all. Yeah. Yeah. So he, yeah, his parents died in the, in the 1956 tornado. Yes. The last thing his father said was take your sister to the house. I'll be right there. And and he watched the silo fall on top of his father. Wow. Um, yeah, that was really something. So anyway, back to me wanting to be an urban (laughs) teacher. Um, when I graduated from New Ulm, there was, uh, I was the only five year English major, with some theater experience. And in fact, I was the only five-year English major who was a male graduating that year, which is what Wisco wanted. And on my way into the call service, the entire English faculty uh, was standing there. And uh, two of the profs, one of them my advisor and one of them, one of my favorite profs ever, Professor Zare, said to me, are you ready to go back home now that you've been out of Milwaukee for five years? And uh, I said, I don't know, we'll see. And uh, when they read my assignment to Oakfield, there was a, an audible, what? <laughs> From many places in the auditorium. And um, yeah, there was, and there was so much commotion. The person reading the calls had to say, I remind everyone that this is a worship service and we'd ask people to refrain. And I'd never seen that before. I didn't even say anything and somehow I created chaos in a, <laughs> in a worship service. Well, you say, I've done that before, not said anything and created chaos in a worship service. But as far as... <laughs> Right. <laughs> but um, I, I saw how, how that all worked out. What I, what I learned in that thing was that I learned to really deal with traumatized children. Um, the movie Twister came out right that summer before I got to Oakfield. Uh-huh. And uh, there were several kids in that class who were traumatized. Even the thought of it made them break down and cry. And uh, that came into play once I started teaching in Milwaukee. So I kind of had this this Jonah complex where that's where God called me. And I was like, no, I'm supposed to be an urban teacher. I'm supposed to be an urban (laughs) teacher. So every weekend I would go down to Milwaukee on Friday night and spend the night at a friend's house and hang out at all the coffee shops and go and see bands play and stuff like this. And, you know, and, and just figure out a way to prove that I was supposed to be in Milwaukee. And eventually, um, two members of the band that I was in in after college, actually, they recruited me when their drummer moved away to the seminary. Um, convinced me to resign from teaching in Oakfield to start a band which became Koine. And so in that way, I moved down to Milwaukee, and we, we played as a rock band before Koine. And uh, we, uh, we started doing that, and I taught at Milwaukee Public Schools and then ended up getting a call in 2004 to Saloa and taught there for nine years, and then uh, Hope High School and eventually six years at St. Marcus before I was out. But um, the reason I really wanted to be an urban teacher, which I started about five minutes ago, was I must have been 
one of the first integrated classrooms in preschool, when I was in preschool. So on Lover's Lane, Highway 100, between Hampton and Silver Springish, maybe, no, Capitol and Hampton, there's this place called Garfield Baptist Church yeah. on the east side of the road. And then right across the street from it, there's another place. That was my preschool. And my mother pulled out this picture of my class. And we had an African-American teacher, and about half of our class was African-American. And this is two years before the United States Supreme Court forced Milwaukee Public Schools to be the last school system in the nation to integrate itself. So I really had a lot of fun with that class, and I thought it was like it was nothing. These were all people, and this yeah, kid, that's what I was gonna ask. Is was it like did you did you even know? Like, no, did you even I had no idea what was going on, and you know, it, I remember once I, I was recalling this when I saw the photo. I hadn't seen it in years and years and years. You know, there we are, all in picture day in in plaid leisure suits and things. <laughs> like. It was the seventies. You know, it's a terrible thing to grow up watching your parents go through the throes of disco. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this one one time, I remember having a problem. So my father was a police officer in Milwaukee, uh, and that was kind of a problem. Uh, but I won't go into details about that. But uh, he uh, he wasn't entirely into the idea, which is why we kept moving south and east. Uh, the city of Milwaukee was far from integrated yet at that oh, point. You said the idea of integration or the idea yes. of... Yes. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, there was this... One of my best friends was this kid named Jarvis. And uh, and so Jarvis and I were playing one day out in the playground, and we were going to play cops and robbers and all this. <laughs> and he said, I know how to be a good robber because my dad is a robber. And I said, oh, yeah, well, my dad's a cop, and he's going to beat your dad up. And at three years old, <laughs> the two of us got into a fight on the playground, and the teacher had to separate us and all that. It's the only time I ever got into a fight as a kid, ever. Um, I learned that that wasn't a good idea, and it really damaged that relationship. And so that's that's kind of how I got into that idea. And probably remained rather passive for the rest of my life because that it really bugged me he was my closest friend up until that point yeah so what would you what would you say so i have been <laughs> quoted several times as saying and i to an extent still believe that you really you're not a man till you've been punched in the face what would you say to that i, I that's way too strong of a statement um a man jeez, something in you changes though and you've been punched in the face you know what i'm saying I would say that's true. You learned true. something about yourself. I don't know. Is that what made me want to be punk rock as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> Just punching everybody in the face with sound. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was... Yeah. I just like think about the first time I got like in an actual fight and somebody punched me in the face. And then I also think about the first time that I was actually like... We were... It was sport. You know, like we were sport. Yeah. We were having fun. It was one of my friends. And... <laughs> Um, both times it was like an awakening for me in one way or another. The first time when I was actually in a fight was like, man, this isn't worth it. I got to stop being a bully. And the other time when it was for sport, it was like, man, I respect him. You know, he respects me. And now I've got this like extra dynamic to our friendship because like I know that you'll stand in there and I know that and you know that I'll stand in there and like we can, you know, like you've taken my wrath and I've taken your wrath kind of thing. I don't know. It just it strikes me as because as, that's something I think about but don't often talk about. Especially in teaching settings, you know, people don't want to hear about fighting or whatever, so you can't no. really talk about it a lot. But <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's just your thoughts on that. Well, other than really, and I wouldn't even say that I hit him or punched him in any kind of way, but I, uh, I don't know that I've ever hit anyone in the face ever in my life, um, other than with sound. I mean, it was that was maybe that's why I played drums so aggressively. Other than the fact that it was drum and bugle corps when I was 14, and that's pretty intense musically. Right. Well, yeah, you're right. There is an intensity there that maybe that is what it is. But maybe I didn't even t I didn't even take that seriously. I mean, um, that was a big joke. I've never been one to be evaluated either. I've always been horrible at being evaluated, probably because, you know, my father was this image in my mind of someone I would never stand up to. Uh, he was oh. like a multi-sport state champion, and he bought his first house at 16. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. And all, all this kind of crazy stuff. You know, he uh, he rose to the top of his prof pro profession as a realtor in Milwaukee and sold his business to Coldwell Banker for like a quarter of a million dollars in a couple of years and moved down to North Carolina where he was the top of his graduating class in the Duke University Cardiac Division, which he was the head of before he graduated. But while he was doing that job, he was a rural route male a man on a horse. 
in <laughs> in the Smoky Mountains. You know, he's he's just too extreme. I was like, well, you know, I'm never going to live up to this. And so I never took things seriously. So when, when I competed in the Drum Corps Midwest snare individuals at the age of 15, I didn't take any of it seriously. And I played half of my solo with spatulas and a plastic egg. <laughs> and the gimmick got me you know, number six in the Midwest. But, you know, it was... I never took any of it seriously, but we were good, I guess. We did take, uh, we were the best drumline in Division Three World Championships that year. And uh, that was kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and that, that like actually speaks a little bit to, to you then, because you are an incredibly talented individual, especially in the percussion areas, but like in many other areas as well. Yeah. Like you just are an incredibly talented individual. Um, and uh, I just kind of, I'd never, yeah, I never really thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm kind of ADHD with music too, though. I mean, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta I, keep your attention. Right. I, I, I kind of do things sporadically. I mean, are you still doing math metal? Math metal. No, I haven't done that in a while. Um, that's so, yeah, I was, I was in a math metal band in Milwaukee from 2002 to 2003 when our guitarist, who was my roommate, died in a house fire. He was a chain smoker. And, uh, that was a rough night. And, uh, so that band literally, just kind of ended right there. We went. You're gonna make it up and smoke choke or something like that. And I was like, yeah, no. Yeah. Well, we we the bass player and I went on as a two piece. Uh, so that was so bizarre that most of the people that re- recall that band referred to us as uh, science metal. <laughs> so we're not. We were. We weren't math enough. There you go. We we were sci- we were metal science <laughs> or science metal. And uh, at the same time, I was in a uh, um, a local funk group that took the world by storm anonymously. <laughs> yeah, so there was a band in Milwaukee called Kings Go Forth about 10 years ago, and that spun off of a project that we started in the basement of River West Film and Video, uh, a group called the Neapolitans. Our 45s are still out there. Uh, we pressed 750 of each of the three of them that were put out, and uh, they still sell on eBay for like 25 to $50. And uh, the one we put out on a, a, an English neo-funk label, um, that we were on a comp for that one. And uh, we had this really cool individual that I really miss playing music with uh, named the Lonesome Organist. He's a one-man band from Chicago. Everyone should, Jeremy's a completely crazy man to play with. Uh, <laughs> you could check him out on YouTube. By and, crazy, do you mean like his music is crazy? Like he doesn't obey the rules of the music? Or He's incredibly talented, and yeah, he bends the rules. <laughs> And so, uh, and then Kings Go Forth spun out of that project. This is, um, there was a documentary made by a filmmaking friend of mine about these three brothers in town. One of them now lives in LA and they're record diggers. They, they travel the entire country and look through for rare records and stuff like that. So they made a documentary about the Super Noble Brothers. And the Noble Brothers are incredibly intense people to know as well. And Andy was our bass player. He was in a funk band that was really big in Milwaukee in the late 90s. They were actually on the People's Court with Judge Wapner. And uh, they, were, they were in this ska band that was reaching national attention in the early 90s named the Pacers. And guess who sued them for their name? The Pacers. Right. So they, they, were, they were, in the end, I guess they won enough money to legally change their band's name. And but they weren't supposed to release maybe any information about how much money they got or something like that. So they named their new band the Thousand Heirs. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> really funny. <laughs> that, that's the Noble Brothers. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and so those guys and another guy, um, Brent Godsell, and then um, and then DDA LaPlay, whose brother runs River West Film and Video. DDA and um, Joe Wong, who's a drummer out in L.A. now, runs a podcast. Uh, called the the trap set, I think it's called. He interviews like Stuart Copeland and all oh, wow. the uh, yeah. Clyde Stubblefield. He got um, and all these great podcasts on drummers and uh, and Joe Wong. Joe Wong is also the heir to Wong's Walk. <laughs> 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 Joe was in some math rock bands in Milwaukee um, back in the '90s, and uh, so uh, he was he did uh, a lot of DDA worked with Joe on drums, and I played drums with DDA and Andy Noble. And Jeremy, the Lonesome Organist, came up a couple times and we recorded some things. And we did this comp out of England uh, where there were 22 new school funk and soul bands. And um, and we each submitted what was supposed to be a cover. And we we did our cover of Crosstown Traffic by Hendrix. And um, they dug up this 
group of soul singers, like a vocal trio from Milwaukee. And one of the singers in this trio was Jarden Eccles, who was a member of Saloa and was on the board there. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to Jordan about that sometime. I really miss Jordan Eccles. <laughs> Jarden Eccles. I shouldn't say it's Jarden. Yeah. Who has a granddaughter who's actually playing basketball, professional basketball overseas right now. Really? Yeah. That, that's not his daughter, Alexis? I taught her when oh, she was... Oh, maybe it is. Okay, it is his, his daughter. Yeah. Cool. He, she was referred to as She-Wade. <laughs> She's quite a ball player. Alexis was amazing. I, I yeah. I, but I think Wade State, I think, is what, or so. Uh, it was uh, out in Ohio, something state out in Ohio. Yeah. So, but a very good basketball player. Anyway, so Jarden was in this um, this very rare um, Milwaukee vocal funk trio from the '70s called the Essentials, and uh, there was like label issues with them. And they couldn't release their recording on their label or some drama like that. So they went over to Detroit. And one of the rarest 45s in all of funk is this release that they put out under the name The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And the name of the song is What You Gonna Do When the World Breaks Down. And it's like worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars if you can find a copy of this thing. And uh, so Andy, the record digger, dug these guys out of nowhere and we recorded this version of Crosstown Traffic, and it was so huge the way that sound was. And Jeremy on the Hammond uh, playing organ and just my approach to <laughs> playing <laughs> funk beats. Um, and uh, it, it was great. And uh, it ended up beating out every other band on the label except for their house band for a promotional 45 that they pressed. And they chose our song to be on side B. Their house band had to be on side A. And it sold out like our other 245s we had put out before it even went to press. And so that, that was... And then that record actually ended up being the number one single in the UK dance club charts for one week. <laughs> and in 2004, January, I believe it was, I have it printed off on a piece of paper somewhere. It, it was declared to be the number... the, the uh, the most influential record of the millennium, although it's a little bit early to say, <laughs> is what the article says. It's 2004. Yeah. <laughs> We're only four years in, folks. We got 96 to go, but this is it. Millennium. <laughs> Not even century. Oh, we've got <laughs> a little bit of hyperbole in that statement from that reviewer, but it was a hot item, and no one knew anything about us. We never played a single show out anywhere. We were going to play at, the, and, and Andy found this bar on like 6th and Clark. That, that was an old wooden dance hall from like the speakeasy era. 6th Sp and, and Clark is like garbage on the sidewalk. Everything's falling apart and crumbling like no windows in the, like no glass in the windows type type area. It's got character, man. Yeah. I live... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I lived on Clark Street for well, 20 years. Well, I lived on years. Hubbard and, and Meineke, so. Yeah, <laughs> but I was, at, I was at East Clark. My, my house, when I left Milwaukee, was on the old River West Stein label. Ah, cool. Yeah, I would go into the Lakefront Brewery and demand royalties from Jim Clish <laughs> once in a while. And he'd toss a wooden chip at me and say, go to the bar. and get." They don't even keep track of the wooden chips. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, good stuff, man. Yeah, so, yeah, and then... Um, you know, it was in October of 2003 we started Coin A out of the, the ashes of the band that, you know, basically begged me to resign from teaching and move to Milwaukee, which was Good Mustard. Which was a, a rock band. Rock band. We were Christians who played rock, but we were not a Christian rock band. Right, okay, yeah. We played rock clubs and underground punk rock venues from here to the Rockies and back uh, for about three years and had a really good time. What kind of stuff? Like, what was your repertoire? Well, it's... Benj Lorenz of Coin A, who's the only original member of that group still in there, uh, always refers, referred to us as Mutt Rock because we would take everything. Like it, it was three guys who came in with three very different musical backgrounds, but we were all into the idea of throwing it all into the pot and seeing what came out. And uh, so the movie Swing Kids had come out a couple of years before, so we tried mixing swing with punk. We wore suits on stage. Uh, which really threw a lot of people off. Um, and uh, we, we did some like more jazz-oriented stuff. We did just straight pop tunes. We uh, used to play um, like gallery settings where we would unplug everything, and I would play with just brushes 
And it got to a point where we were playing this one gallery every single Wednesday night and we would have these picnics. It was a potluck picnic on Wednesday night in River West and all the weird art people would come in. And uh, <laughs> there was a 55-gallon drum in the back and I didn't want to bring a drum anymore. And this is when I was hanging around with um, this group, the Danglers, out of the east side of Milwaukee. So that's violin, upright bass, and, and drums. And that drummer had started hanging out with Victor DiLorenzo of the Violent Femmes. And so we would hang out with Victor and, and John Sparrow and I were totally, John now plays with the Violent Femmes on tour because Victor doesn't really tour anymore. And so we were really learning a lot about playing brushes from Victor because um, everyone loves the Violent Femmes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I would play this 55-gallon drum with brushes and a, and a cast iron frying pan and it was really just because I was lazy. <laughs> And, you know, hence the idea of really just kind of throwing a lot of things to the wind and reinventing the wheel. Koine, for years, because I was lazy, perhaps, uh, I had been studying a lot of, like, Clyde Stubblefield and funk beats at that point. This was about when we started doing the Neapolitans, the funk group, at the same time. And uh, I was too lazy to carry a whole drum kit around because I had Koine practice going on, and then I had my math metal band, which was practicing up in a warehouse, a tool and die shop, over by the outpost on Capitol on East Capitol over there. And then I had another band that I was trying to start. And there was, I had drum kits all over the city. And all I had left was a kick drum, a snare drum, and a hi-hat. And so I said, well, that can work because you listen to any James Brown recording and there's no toms, there's no crash cymbals. Maybe you get a ride cymbal once in a while, but you can just open the hi-hat and do that. And so that became the approach. It was completely minimalist. And then people are like, well, you, no great rock song has ever been done that way. And I was like, well, every single Velvet Underground recording has no toms and no cymbals because Lou Reed wouldn't allow it. And then people are like, well, OK, so that's the Velvet Underground. They have a very unique sound. And I was like, well, then look up the, the Cure <laughs> video for Fascination Street. He's only using a kick drum, a snare drum, and a hi-hat. And I thought that looked incredibly cool. And so that was the idea I took there. All the Neapolitans recordings, I had successfully done that with only kick, snare, and hi-hat. And... Uh, I shouldn't say all of them. The first 45 we put out, there's a ride symbol in it. <laughs> I don't think I used any toms. But, um, and then I went completely the opposite approach in my next band after the fire and all that. So we wanted to form a band that was heavier in, than metal. And so we named it Masonry. <laughs> <laughs> so heavier than metal, is that just like crazy guitars? and, and Yeah, it was really taking like the big you know riffy rock style and then like turning the amp up to 11 and to use the spinal tap reference <laughs> and then it literally became how can we overplay this so it was 18 bazillion notes per measure you know you started getting into all kinds of bizarre like tabla rhythms on the drum kit just for the fun of it so it was it went from completely minimalist to how much extra notes can I throw yeah, into it? How much noise can we make? Playing over the bar line. It was, compl it, it, it was in many ways very sloppy. And so that band and Koine going on at the same time and teaching at Saloa and <laughs> putting an addition on my house because we bought, you know, this tiny little 900 square foot house on the River West Stein label and had two kids and I was going to grad school while teaching full time at Saloa and being the weekend warrior Koine musician and, you know, Wednesday night was masonry night. Uh, the wife said, you got to give it up. And so she kind of forced me out of music, which is a wonderful thing in the end. And uh, so I haven't officially um, been in a touring band since then. So then I decided to start um, a math rock band, just straight up 90s style, actually Fox Valley style math rock. There was a very unique sound coming out of the Fox Valley in the early 90s. Uh, some friends of mine are in a band from Menasha called Sounds Like Braille. Uh, there was a band. Um, Sounds like Braille. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're good guys. Um, <laughs> Dave Osterling is, is supposedly going to do some kind of project with a friend of mine from Milwaukee here. Um, and um, I don't know if that's ever going to happen. But Good Mustard used to play with this band uh, called Chinaski. Uh, there's a silent H. So it, people call them H Chinaski, but they were just called Chinaski. And they're very interesting people. They, they were Christians also who played in an indie rock band that was a math rock band. And I remember playing in the Oshkosh once with them uh, at a bar that Pete Reese of Good Mustard and Koine had, had booked. And it was just these dudes saw us in a bar in Appleton when we had played this place called Ryan's Ballroom in Combined Locks. Actually, it's not in Appleton. Combined Locks is a suburb. It was this old one-room schoolhouse. 
and we played there with uh, Chinaski, and we loved playing with them. Uh, the place was really cool. It had an L-shaped pool table, so if you would cut off two pool tables from the the center pocket to the opposite co- oh, yeah. corner pocket, and then meld them together. There was this really cool L-shaped pool table there. And Jason Bonham's band, you know, uh, John Bonham's son, played there the night before us. We had a lot of that in Good Mustard. We played at this this place out in Bozeman, Montana, that was a VFW post by day. And at 5 o'clock, the old, you know, VFW guy would take the till out of the drawer. And he this punk rocker would come in and put a different money till into the same cash register and just keep <laughs> bartending. So we played this place out there. Modest Mouse had been there the night before and had like, oh, wow. like 500 people crammed into the bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, we had two people that night in the middle of a blizzard in the middle <laughs> of the hockey playoffs for the university in town. And there were two guys there. One of them was a professional rodeo clown or bull rider or something. The other guy was from Mankato who ran a, a CarQuest auto parts store in town. It was our <laughs> yeah. highest paying gig on that tour. They loved us and they gave us like three hundred dollars wow <laughs> they said <laughs> make sure awesome. you come back next year so i don't know where i was going with that so um yeah where was i going with that <laughs> i don't know you said um you were cutting off back on music is what yeah yeah, yeah. and so it, we are, i was supposed to cut back on oh the 90s uh indie rock sound so i started this band based upon those bands that i loved from the fox valley that no one's ever heard of no one's ever heard of chinaski one of my favorite groups from up in the fox valley there was this band called hong not hong kong just hong with an exclamation point i can't find anything (laughs) about them on google um they were friends of a friend of mine from oshkosh um and they played all the time in river west at this place that's still around called quarters rock and roll palace uh, it's a dive bar, <laughs> but it was it was an amazing place to hear these bands that no one has ever heard of who are touring around the country. But um, there was this other band from Oshkosh that we would play with a lot. Uh, they went into the it must have been a blockbuster video and they went directly to the documentary section and took the you know, randomly picked a video off the back and took the first sentence of the, the video, the back of the video and named their band. Congratulations on your decision to become a pilot. And they had this incredible sound, and their videos are up. So on the YouTube. name of the band was "Congratulations on Your Decision to Become a Pilot." Yes, they awesome. went. They went as the co-pilots. <laughs> but yeah, the full band name was "Congratulations on Your Decision to Become a Pilot." Um, there are a couple of other bands. You know, there there was this really incredible late '80s, early '90s indie slash punk rock band out of Appleton called Vesicular Basalt. Um, that was an incredible <laughs> band. <laughs> And so I was really looking to recreate because these people are incredibly talented kids who had this like somewhat aleatory approach to tonality and rhythm wasn't, you know, it wasn't that you were chopping wood on two and four on the snare. And, you know, it it was nothing you would hear on WAPL, even though I do listen to WAPL every time I'm going anywhere near the Fox Valley. Um, And I think a lot of it was because. There was a really good music store up there, and there was Tony's Drum Shop. Tony was in Street Life. Um, they played for the Bucks for years. And cool. They, they played one of my cousin's wedding receptions at Lake Park <laughs> Bistro for a while. But uh, the um, that scene was really good. They, they had this really crazy Harold. Uh, Harold was this guitar teacher up at Hyde's Music in Appleton who looked like Garth from the like <laughs> Wayne and Garth. Harold was awesome, and he it, like all these weird kids came out with this incredible sense of creativity, and this sound came out of the Fox Valley that was just astounding. Uh, so, in the back of my mind, and several you know like discollected files on my hard drive at home are two books that I've been working on that I don't have time to finish right now. So, one of them is my experience playing music in River West in Milwaukee, which is called uh, "The Incline of River West Civilization," and then uh, another one is called. Um, it doesn't have an official title yet, but it's just that Fox Valley sound. Um, and it's that's what we were going with when we created the band in 2010 called Deep Prong Mori. Um, and that has yet to be finished. I have recordings that were made in a multi-track format, and I'm mixing it, and it will be released maybe sometime in the next two years if I really get spare time when I need to retreat into my creative <laughs> mind to solve something professionally, I go away and do something completely opposite. So yeah. that'll be my next project. I did last year release the last two lost recordings albums of Good Mustard. So at one point, the band Strife was pulling it towards punk rock when I was playing math metal. And so we got more and more punk rock, but like conceptual punk rock albums that were 
completely insane. So we wanted to change the band's name to Dimsdale because we were once written up uh, in an article which was the top 50 worst band names of all time <laughs> for the band name Good Mustard. And the, the review was, I, I always loved the review. I hated the band name. Um, <laughs> there's a story that comes from Northwestern College as to how they got that band name. I did not name the band. I was officially, I believe, their fourth drummer. Oh. So, <laughs> I just, it, you know, <laughs> but the... Um, so we named the band Dimsdale, but then there was this other whole collection of just way out there experimental stuff once we had built our own recording studio in our basement. And then um, the guy that Coyne still re- does a lot of the recording with was a guy named Vinnie Milavolti, who uh, ran a recording studio clandestinely above the Waukesha County Conservatory of Music, which is a music store, <laughs> um, in the late 90s. And uh, Vinnie had bought the Bar- Paradise Theater right over here on the south side of Milwaukee, where like... Lincoln and I don't know what that is, maybe National and 55th Street kind of co- that yeah. there's a bizarre intersection in there. Yeah, it's like a five way and there's like yeah. that not a library, there's something on the corner there too, yeah. Yeah, when I was a kid that was a lot of strip clubs and and go-go bars and <laughs> now it's now it's like a flower <laughs> shop and a yeah. other things, a music store. Right. So, Vinny had purchased that theater with a couple of partners and they were building a recording studio in there and he didn't want his microphones near the dust. So we had like a year and a half when we had like $50,000 worth of microphones, including this beautiful $5,000 Neumann microphone that was like we'd put on gloves before we'd pull it out of its little box. And <laughs> so we did all this weird experimental stuff in our basement in River West and made all these recordings. So I released those two and now I'm just sitting on the Deep Prong Mori recordings, which are really... That got pretty mathy, um, but it was supposed to sound like it came out of these like no-name punk rock, indie rock bands of the early 90s that were producing, you know, like one flash in the pan, 500 copies, seven-inch record. <laughs> and we actually made up myths about, you know, we, oh, no, we're, we're covering all of these songs. So we, <laughs> we claimed that this this song was written by a band named Monument Indiana that was from Ohio (laughs) and made all these crazy things up. Um, That song, uh, which the title of the song is, uh, it looks like 19911 and we pronounced it 1911 because it was kind of like how the year 2001 was just really the last year of that 90s music sound for us. And that song actually has the, the development, the bridge into the, verse if you will this is instrumental indie rock you know like this stuff is out there but um the guitar is playing in like five four time and the bass part is really in seven (laughs) but not four you know and what i'm playing ends up coming around on you know it comes out in the wash every 17 and a half measures or something like that but it sounds beautiful like you could dance to it if you wanted to and maybe if you had one leg shorter than the other (laughs) <laughs> so it's a good time and in other songs we did you know we're alternating time signatures stuff like that and yeah. and um there was a one song when we really we spent the first three months writing one song um because chinaski recorded all of their recordings on their their first full-length album in this building called the webster building and the uw oshkosh camps campus and so we named our first song the webster building franchise so that that was the idea behind our band and uh that's really the last official musical project that i've had other than some experimental things and some you know that filmmaker friend of mine and i we um the bass player from that actually i shouldn't say that the bass player from deep prong mori and i had we have a band that meets together for improv every eight or to ten years (laughs) so that band's called the plankton brothers and those videos are out there on youtube and they're pretty interesting stuff as well uh, we just plug in and go. That guitar player who lives on the East Coast and is in this like doom synth metal band now is actually from beautiful Freedom, Wisconsin, which is between Appleton and Green Bay. And he's a product of that whole Fox Valley scene cool. as well. Cool. Um, so besides uh, the Plankton Brothers, any other plans to get back into sure. see Bob Bus playing gigs yeah, in the Northwest? Yeah, I, ju- I just had a conversation about two weeks ago. There was this guy... Um, who lived in River West the same time that I did, was in this, like, I don't know. I don't want to call it stoner rock because I don't want to really get into that as a lifestyle. (laughs) 
But there's a sound that goes on with bands like Queens of the Stone Age and the band Caius. And yeah, 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 yeah. There's something about that big, heavy sound that's beautiful. Uh, in the car right now, I'm listening to an album by the Melvins. You know, mm-hmm. just this that slow girth of sound that there's nothing like it in the world, and it's 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 beautiful and it's comforting. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a like a like the oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, Jamaican guy. It's almost like that mixed with like a, a a rock type thing going on at the same time. You're talking about Lee Perry? No, <laughs> no, the the other guy. I don't know. Yeah, it must anyway. be modern. I don't know. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, shoot, what's his name? But anyway, there's this guy that was in River West at the time I was there, um, who was in a band that was kind of big. So there's the there's a friend of mine named River. He, we call him River. His real name is Jeff, but he, everyone knows him as River, who was in this band called Power Wagon, which was kind of big. And uh, they did a reunion tour a little while ago, and um, they kind of had that sound. And they had formed a band um, with my friend Jason, who lived in River West when I did, uh, named Fame. And just real big, two guitars. You know, my original math metal band, Musawaki Gatsumuzen, it was a Japanese style. And that's apparently Japanese for puss monkey. <laughs> so there's your punch in the face. So, <laughs> so we'd play basement shows with them and stuff like that. Um, and we actually, Musawaki played at the Globe East before it became the, uh, what's it called? The Something Hotel on East North Avenue. I forget what the bar is called now. Um, but it was the Globe East. It was a legendary place. Uh, Isn't that BBC? No, next door we played the BBC. That was a good time too. It's good mustard. But um, Musawaki played at what was the Globe East? It's the Foster Hotel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. okay. The the Globe East. And was, there's still even signs up that say Globe East. And oh, everything. totally. Yeah, the Globe was like when you played the Globe, it was a big deal. And um, we played at the Globe East with the band OK Go the week they were signed. And there were like 20 people in the bar and us really? and some other band that just was like, oh, yeah, whatever. And so, yeah, it, it was cool to play with, you know, always just right at the cusp of fame and never quite being noticed is yeah. is is the the common denominator in my musical career. So yeah. so my friend Jason, who was in this band named Fame, uh, he moved up to Chatech, Wisconsin, which is about 45 minutes as the crow flies from where I am in Menominee. And I called him up a couple of weeks ago and I said, Jay, what's going on up here? There's nothing going on. There's a good record store in Eau Claire. And that's the only thing. And he's like, yeah, there's really, there's nothing going on around here. So Jason and I are going to figure out what's going on. And <laughs> if we have to form a two piece, we'll form a two piece, you know, yeah. uh, but we're looking to make a sound. So we're studying two piece, uh, you know, big rock and roll sound, independent bands there was one out of Wisconsin called Godhead Silo, all one word, which was fantastic. Um, one of my friends out of the Fox Valley, who now lives in the Philippines somewhere, uh, is friends with a band out of Washington that was called Sea Average. Their big claim to fame was Eddie Vedder discovered them and did a, a series of shows on big stages with them as his backup band. Um, stuff like that. Just looking at two-piece bands, the White Stripes, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing the White Stripes at the Cactus Club with like, 200 other people that could fit in a 100 person room. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best concerts though. It was. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing, um, modest mouse in a basement in river West on pier street with about 60 people. We played with a, uh, um, a bizarre side project of theirs once supposedly, but they were kind of like going incognito. Um, the band Don Cavallaro out of Chicago, crazy math rock band, uh, their drummer, Damon Che, uh, they refer to him as the octopus because he plays a lot of notes. Um, um, I was never that big a Don Cab fan, but math rock people really like Don Cab. Yeah. Um, but um, we played with a side project of his where he played guitar called Creta Borgia. Uh, that was an interesting show. That was actually the same night that uh, my math metal band, Muswaki, went up and played in Ryan's Ballroom in Appleton that night. So we couldn't even stay to see them play. We played two shows in one night, one in River West and one in Appleton. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was yeah, <laughs> that was an evening and a half. All right, well, we'll uh, have Bob on again next week. To talk about some other stuff, but um, if you if you understand what Bob is saying without a translator, and you understand <laughs> you you hear all this and you're loving it, uh, how could somebody get a hold of you if they want to ask you some questions or or uh, talk about some more of this kind of stuff? Um, I don't know. They can. 
I don't really Facebook that often. I don't have time for it. And I I, I, I don't really care about most of what goes on in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I suppose they could, uh, there's a YouTube channel where a lot of my material is posted. They could comment on videos. Uh, That's that's, uh, BBUSS, BBUS 53212, which is the zip code of River West. And it's just basically my River West musical history and other bands including the solo works and other projects of that guitar player who died. So what what is that channel? That, that's a YouTube channel, Bbus 53212. Bbus 53212. Yeah, it, it has like probably a total combined view of maybe 100 views on all 30-some videos that are up there. Well, we're going to make it 130. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you, Bob. Yep. Uh, appreciate your time. Sure. Good one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the content we put out today. If you want to hear more content like this, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. You'll find us. It's a big blue picture with a white cross. It's the Gird Up logo right there. Make sure you're following us on social media. On Instagram, you can find me as Bibles, Beards, and Creatine. It's, I know it's a goofy name, but it's a good one. I enjoy it. You can find us on Facebook as the Gird Up Podcast. And if you still email, you can send any emails that you want to send to coachungamak at gmail.com. Thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. Thank you to Pippa, the awesome hosting site that I get to use. Thank you to Seth Pommeyer for our awesome logos and podcast art. Um, and thank you to my roommate for putting up with me, my friends and family for encouraging me. Go Gird Up, guys. Be the man that God created you to be. I hope you have a good one.